Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Over the last few days, there has been a flurry of diplomatic activity between Russia, Ukraine, the United States, Germany, and France, among others. Meanwhile, the messaging coming from the White House indicates that they believe a Russian attack on Ukraine is imminent. On Tuesday, February 15th, President Biden delivered prepared remarks from the White House promising punishing sanctions should Russia indeed attack. Given the intensity of the Russia-Ukraine crisis at the moment, I thought it would be useful to devote an episode to the very latest developments here. To that end, I am joined by Melinda Herring of the Atlantic Council, who offers some context and analysis of recent diplomatic maneuverings. We spoke via Twitter spaces just after President Biden concluded his remarks from the White House. And after I finished my interview with Melinda Herring, I noticed that the former United States ambassador to NATO, Ivo Dalder, was in the audience listening in, and he graciously agreed to take a few questions from me impromptu. Uh, so after my interview with Melinda Herring, you will also hear from Ivo Dalder, who served as Obama's ambassador to NATO during President Obama's first term. So this episode came together at the very last minute, and I am hugely thankful to Melinda Herring for speaking with me uh, with such short notice. And a big thank you to all who participated live. There were a few thousand people in the room. It was a great conversation. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg to be alerted when I am hosting one of these live recordings of the podcast. All right, now here is my conversation with Melinda Herring, followed by former U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Evo Dalder. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. This week is supposed to be game week, right? Everyone expected Vladimir Putin to roll in on the 16th, tomorrow, Wednesday. And we woke up this morning to news reports that Vladimir Putin, that the Russian troops that have been surrounding Ukraine on three sides are beginning to withdraw. Now, the U.S. has not verified that and NATO hasn't verified that. And President Biden just said that the reports that Russia has withdrawn uh, troops near Ukraine are not verified, and we're going to be watching that space very, very closely. But this, this, this uh, definitely de-escalates the situation, right? It, the pressure had been building and building and building. 
Uh, and U.S. intelligence and the National Security Advisor, the president, had been saying almost every single day that the threat is imminent. Well, it looks like Vladimir Putin is playing games. So, Mark, I was one of the analysts who thought that Vladimir Putin was going to go into Ukraine again. And we need to say again, because Vladimir Putin went into Ukraine in 2014 and he illegally annexed the Crimean Peninsula. And then he went into the Donbass in eastern Ukraine in Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast. And he occupies about 7 percent of of, of mainland Ukraine now in in the east. So, uh, look. It looks like he's backing up and he wants the world to, to uh, forget about Ukraine for a little while. Uh, and then he will probably increase the volume again and again. And I, I hate to say it, but this crisis is not going away. It looks like the immediate crisis uh, has been dashed a bit. But I agree with, with uh, the White House that this crisis is not over and we're not out of the woods. The news that Putin is um, perhaps taking soldiers away from the front is, is though not yet confirmed, is something that you think is actually happening? Uh, look, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I think everyone's still waiting for verification on that. And, you know, Vladimir Putin says he's not going to invade Ukraine. And I say, uh, you know, trust but verify. So, you know, let, let's wait and see. I think the, 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 the bottom line, though, is, is that it looks like, and we heard this yesterday from, from uh, Moscow, they want to negotiate. Uh, so, and I think that's interesting. What that signals is that Putin realizes that if he goes in, he loses a lot of leverage. So if he sits on the border and just menaces Ukraine, he drives the economy into the ground. Uh, if he sits on the border and menaces Ukraine, uh, three to six months later, uh, the economy is going to be in really bad shape. Uh, and, and he may, he will definitely have hurt Ukrainians resolve. He's not going to kill Ukrainians resolve, but he will massively hurt the economy. You know, he could shut down airports. He could shut down normal life just by menacing, by, by sitting on the border. So he, he doesn't have to invade and he avoids, you know, another package of international sanctions. That's a smart play. So I don't know. I, I saw this speech while no Ukraine expert, I've seen presidents give speeches from the East room before, and this seemed at least to me, to be a speech you give if you are convinced uh, that Putin will in fact invade or reinvade uh, in in the uh, you know near term in the near future. You know the speech you give after the invasion is you know prime time from the Oval Office. Uh, but I don't know. This seemed to me to like be priming the American public for potential consequences of an imminent invasion. Look, that's that's possible, Mark. I have a different, more cynical interpretation. So Biden says invasion remains distinctly possible, right? And, and you know the the intel that we've that that has been reported from the Washington Post and CNN. I don't I don't have a security clearance. I don't have access to the intel. But from what we know, that's been reported. It's scary as hell, right? And it, it, it's not just menacing troops. It's a huge amount of equipment. I'm sure that we've heard intercepts. We may have, you know, I, I don't want to speculate what's there. I, I, I don't I don't work in the national security space, but it's really scary. I've never seen the president and the national security advisor come out uh, you know, and make these kinds of warnings before. It's really unusual, but it's politically driven. This this is the piece that we need to dig into. So it is 2022 and Biden has had a big screw up with Afghanistan and he can't afford another big screw up. And Ukraine could be an enormous screw up. If things get out of hand in Ukraine, we could have another world war. That's the worst case scenario. Uh, and and Biden, Biden knows that, that if 
if Putin wins in Ukraine, uh, Biden's going to look very, very weak and it's going to give the Republicans more ammunition in the midterm elections. So I think that's part of it. And you also have to remember, President Biden was there in 2014 uh, when we when we had Crimea. Uh, and, you know, the, the U.S. wasn't ready for this. We were caught off guard. So, you know, I would give the Biden administration high marks for being open, for, for uh, issuing warning after warning and for getting the allies together and putting, you know, a sanctions package together. They've done a great job on that. And they've, they've been very, very clear about the threat. Now, Kiev is not happy with him. Kiev is very unhappy. And when we were in uh, Kiev two weeks ago, we, we uh, our delegation met with the president, uh, with many RADA members, with a lot of ministers. And we heard it over and over again. And they said, you know, we love you guys. Thank you for the military equipment, but you're driving our economy into the ground. Can you guys knock it off? Can you stop uh, engaging in, you know, excessive threats? Kiev does not disagree with our intelligence assessment, but they disagree with the interpretation of it. That's that's sort of the uh, the, the 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 area of disagreement between Kiev and Washington. So there was an interesting uh, moment I, I saw today in which Biden very explicitly uh, promised the shutdown of Nord Stream Two should the um, invasion proceed. Meanwhile, uh, earlier today, Schultz, Olaf Schultz and, and Putin met for, for like a, a long meeting. What do you know of what came from that meeting between uh, the Chancellor of Germany and Vladimir Putin? Honestly, I, I don't know. I, I, I haven't, I'm not privy to, to any um, juicy information there. I, I'm, I'm sorry to report. I do know some juicy stuff about the Macron-Putin meeting, and I'm glad to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. But spill, spill the juicy macron Spill the juicy. Meeting. Oh, I love it. Okay, but one point on the, the Schultz meeting. Look, if 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 Putin, or sorry, if, if Biden is finally saying that he's going to cancel Nord Stream 2 if the Russians go in, that's beautiful. He should have done it before. Uh, it's way, you know, it, it's, it should have happened a long time ago. Uh, but let's see if he can get Schultz on board. So, you know, Schultz is in bed with the business community in Germany, and it's going to be a really bitter pill to swallow. So, you know, if, if Biden's able to get the Germans on board, bully to him. So with the, the Macron-Biden meeting, uh, I've heard some juicy stuff. So uh, we all saw that the ridiculous pictures with Biden, or I'm sorry, with with um, Macron on one side and Putin on one side at this enormous table. You know, and, and Ikea has made a joke uh, about selling this enormous table with, you know, people on one end of the table not talking to each other. So we know that there were multiple rounds of PCR tests demanded before Macron could see uh, Putin. I, I believe it was three. It was many. We know that that uh, Putin is increasingly isolated and he has seen very few people during COVID. We also know that he wanted to talk a lot about Russia's historic grievances and he wasn't interested in negotiations. When Macron would try to push him back to, to discussing the Minsk agreements, this is the peace accords that were signed in 2014 and 2015 that haven't yet been implemented. Uh, Putin wanted to go straight back to Russia's historic grievances. So there's a lot of speculation that, that Putin uh, may be sick, and that's why he has these sort of excessive COVID protocols. You know, when the rest of the world is moving away from uh, PCR tests, you know, in, in two weeks of, of quarantine before you can see each other, uh, Putin's regime doesn't seem to have changed. So there's some speculation that either he's sick or that he's just gotten increasingly paranoid because of COVID. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but th that's that's the gossip that I've heard. So another development today were apparent uh, DDoS attacks. These are distributed denial of service attacks. Uh, basically, you know, not the worst kind of, of a cyber attacks, but the kind of cyber attack you launch when you want to like shut down a website uh, and make websites inaccessible yep. uh, to several, um, to, to like, 
Well, do you, actually, do you know specifically the targets in Ukraine of these DDoS attacks? I I only saw the the the, the headlines. There were reports that they were headed at banks, but I haven't seen anything confirmed. Mark, I'm sorry. It, it, well, what was I mean? Other than what was I guess concerning to me uh, about those attacks is that you know we've uh, heard from for months now uh, that a common tactic used by Vladimir Putin is to launch you know cyber attacks ahead of like actual kinetic attacks. Yep. Uh, yep. And you know this seemed to fit into that pattern, which is like another. I think, ratcheting up of, of concern that, again, like an attack might be imminent. Yeah, no, that, that's true. Everyone expects cyber. So, you know, if you're looking at what might Putin do short of a full scale land invasion, I, I expect major cyber, but he's been doing this for a long time in Ukraine. This is not, you know, this is not a new tactic in Ukraine. I expect him to cut heat. I expect him to cut power. He can do all those things pretty easily. Uh, and, and, you know, those are moves that he can he can take uh, without incurring any additional Western sanctions. Uh, look, the, the president's right. He can do what he wants. He can strike when he wants. Um, you know, Vladimir Putin, people don't want me to say this, but Vladimir Putin can take as much of Ukraine as he wants, but he's not going to be able to hold it. So that that that's that's one of his fundamental problems. There are some constraints on what he can do. So 45% of Ukrainians have told the Rosomkov Center, which is one of the most reputable polling firms in Ukraine, that they will fight if Putin invades again. And I think that number is actually pretty low. I, I think it may be higher than that. But we know that, that Ukrainians will resist. And there are some other geographical constraints on how far Putin could go. So if he wanted to roll in and he says, you know, I, I don't care about these sanctions, you know, it's going to hurt, but I've already priced it in. I have $600 billion in the bank. Uh, his his maximalist demand is going to be the Dnieper River, and that's about a third of Ukraine. So he would he would take Kharkiv in the north, which is not very well defended. He would try to take Kiev, the capital, uh, which is on the Dnieper River. And there, I think he's going to encounter enormous resistance. Then he would go down to Dnipro and try to take Odessa. Uh, you know, he, if he used the Air Force, he could do it. Uh, but he's not going to be able to hold it. So I, I, I don't see him trying that. I think that the more clever tactic um, is what he's doing now. Try to <clears throat> try to disengage a little bit, de-escalate, uh, get the world focused on on other problems. Uh, you know, get off of the front page of the New York Times and CNN every day. Uh, and then when he's ready, he'll increase the pressure on Ukraine again when no one's watching. Uh, I guess given the current situation uh, and the dynamics that you just outlined, I mean, mm-hmm. do you, are there any like elements of a potential diplomatic way out of, of this? I mean, it's been said many times that, you know, the security guarantee that Putin wants is uh, an explicit um, guarantee that Ukraine will not become a, a member of, of NATO. I've seen other commentary suggest that, you know, really what uh, concerns Putin is not whether or not they are explicitly or implicitly a member of NATO or not. Rather, it's sort of the you know, process of democratization on, on Ukraine's border and, and uh, pardon me, on Russia's border. Uh, either way, I mean, do you see at this moment like elements of, of, a, of a way out of the situation of a diplomatic sort of off ramp? Mark, I really wish I could say yes, but I do not. I think diplomacy has been on life support for a couple of weeks. And there's a couple of ways, you know, the, the ideas that have been floated. One is the, the Minsk agreements. And, and I mentioned those. It's the peace agreements that were signed in 2014 and 2015 by Russia, Ukraine, 
Germany and France. And now these agreements uh, were signed when Ukraine was really, really weak. Uh, and Ukraine in general, this is you know, j- just to, to you know, give you the top headline, Ukraine will not accept the Minsk agreements. They, they were forced on them uh, and they will destroy uh, Ukrainian society uh, if, if they're implemented. Now, Russia has broken the, the Minsk agreements time and time again. There's been no progress made on them. Uh, you know, so Macron was really hot to trot on the Minsk agreements uh, and he was pushing and pushing on that. But Ukraine, U- Ukrainians will not. So the other basic problem with Minsk is that they're very, very um, they're subject to interpretation. The Ukrainians have an interpretation of them. The Russians have an interpretation of them. Uh, and the Ukrainians will not accept the Russian interpretation of Minsk. They think that it would give Moscow a veto over Kiev's foreign policy. And that's an absolute red line. It ain't going to happen. So that's one of the areas where, where uh, negotiators tried. And then, the, of course, the NATO issue is really the big issue. So we need to uh, go back to 2008, and we're in Bucharest, and we have a NATO summit, and Georgia and uh, Ukraine are, are being voted on. And they're offered an open door policy. And what that was, it was an empty promise uh, that, that the door to NATO is open, but they were not given a time frame. Uh, and that allowed Vladimir Putin to drive a tank through both of these countries. Uh, and I think that was a grave, grave mistake. Uh, and, you know, the Ukrainians and Georgians both still want to join, but they've never been given uh, real dates and timelines. And that that's, you know, that's one of the big mistakes that the, the West made. But to answer your question, no, there's there's no way to negotiate on, on, on NATO membership. NATO gets to decide who is and who is not a member. Russia does not get any uh, a say over that. So what concessions would Putin, you think, be comfortable, you know, walking uh, away with? Like what, you know, if, if, sir, okay, if this question on NATO is uh, off the table for the West, what other off ramps exist? I don't see any, honestly, like you, you can, we can debate some of the smaller things. We can talk about some arms. We could talk about reassurance, but none of those, we, there's still a fundamental problem about NATO. Uh, and, and there's no way to dance around it. There's no cute diplomatic formula. You know, some people have proposed maybe asking uh, Ukraine to suspend its NATO aspirations for 10, 20, 30 years. It ain't going to happen. And people who suggest that are so out of touch with public opinion in Ukraine. Ukrainians have lost 14,000 of their brothers and sisters since 2014. And Ukraine has massively changed. It has decided firmly that it wants to be part of the West. So that that's, you know, that's a solution that I've seen uh, some pretty smart people float, but it, it ain't going to happen. You know, you can't, you can't negotiate Ukraine's foreign policy without Ukraine. Uh, okay. Lastly, and I know you have to go in just a couple minutes. So I want to ask you one last question, you know, sure. in the coming, you know, days or I don't know, even hours, um, what are you looking towards to suggest to you what the next iteration of this crisis might look like? Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. So a couple of things I'm watching. So first is, you know, can we verify, can the USG or NATO verify that the Russians have actually uh, started to de-escalate? So that, that's number one. That's the immediate thing. I'm watching the Ukrainian economy as well. Uh, so the Ukrainian economy is being artificially propped up right now. Uh, because, uh, you know, of, of what this escalation has done and because of the sort of uh, scaremongering around the es- uh, the escalation. I'm also watching the Donbass. So uh, today, the, the Duma, the Russian parliament passed a new bill about the status of the LNR and the DNR 
uh, and Russia wants to annex these places. Uh, what I think is going to happen next is that we're going to move from being obsessed with Russian tanks and troops and what will Vladimir Putin do next militarily to what kind of trouble is he going to stir up politically. So I think he's going to try to stir up trouble through uh, the, 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 these uh, people's republics, you know, out out in eastern Ukraine. Uh, there's a lot of different things he could try. He could also try to, uh, it, you know, he, he could try to assassinate Zelensky. He could try to put in a pro-Russian thug. Uh, they could try to jam Minsk down Kiev's uh, throat. There's a lot of different things that they're going to try. Um, so I, I would just say watch the Donbass. That's the, 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 the really hot place right now. And, and that's where they can easily cook up a pretext. There's several hundred thousand um, Ukrainians who have Russian passports out there. And you'll remember that's the pretext Putin used before. Uh, he has to defend his Russian countrymen. So, you know, that th- those are all the sort of triggers that I see to watch for. Uh, well, Melinda, thank you so much for your time. This is very helpful, and I will let you go now. Thank you. I, I do see uh, a former United States ambassador to NATO in the audience. Please feel free to request to speak, uh, and I'd call you up. I'd love to get your uh, perspective on both Biden's speech today and also uh, more broadly how you see NATO responding uh, to this crisis. Oh, there you go, Ivo Dalder. Hey, thanks. Uh, sorry, I didn't. I only joined a couple of minutes ago. One of the natures of this thing, uh, but glad to um, to say a few things uh, on Biden's speech. I think we need to understand the context uh, of it. Um, I, I think in uh, we're in the middle of an information war in which both sides are trying to uh, make the case they want to make um, clearly. The narrative uh, that folks were reading in the last few 24, 48 hours coming out of Moscow suggested uh, that there might be a, a way uh, out of this uh, through diplomacy, uh, the staged event with um, Putin and Lavrov and yet another one of these very long tables uh, uh, with Lavrov saying that there was scope for diplomacy and, and there were still uh, room for that and Putin saying good. Um, uh, suggested, uh, then followed up with the announcement that some troops uh, might be uh, uh, moving back to barracks, and that after the exercises were done, they would uh, they would uh, continue to move back to their home bases. Suggested in the last twenty four hours that perhaps things were changing. Uh, I think Biden went out with a very clear sense that when we look at the reality of what's on the ground, as opposed to the rhetoric that's coming out of the Kremlin, uh, the reality doesn't uh, doesn't point to anything less. Fundamentally, diplomacy remains stuck uh, by uh, Putin uh, demanding things that he knows he cannot and will not get, by the way, shouldn't get. Uh, but it also uh, uh, is the case that uh, we now have 150,000 Russian troops who are in the midst of a very, very large-scale exercise in the north of Ukraine, in the south of Ukraine, in the Black Sea, uh, and to the east, ready to invade if and when they decide, and only they decide. And I think it was important for the president to make clear that uh, a bunch of statements coming out of the Kremlin from people we cannot trust isn't sufficient to change that. So that's, I think, the reality uh, that we're watching today. Uh, I don't think things have changed much from Friday when Jake Sullivan went out in something that national security advisors generally don't do uh, to say that war was imminent. Um, final point, uh, just to, uh, to to 
uh, agree fully with Walter. Uh, Ukraine has been at war with Russia uh, for the past eight years. It's lost 30,000 tr- uh, 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 people uh, as a result of that war. Uh, and it's been at war without anyone in any way uh, posing a threat to Russia, um, whether that is the U.S. or NATO or anywhere else. And if there is a threat uh, that is posed by that, then let's have a negotiation, uh, not uh, the kind of ultimatums and blackmail that we're seeing uh, in, uh, uh, in the region at the moment. Thanks. Uh, well, so, so having served as U.S. ambassador to NATO for pretty much, what, the entirety of, of Obama's administration? No, just, just the first um, year. Oh, just the first term. Okay, sorry, I'm inflating your your, your resume. Sorry, I know that you now you're the head of uh, Chicago uh, World Affairs Council on World Affairs. Um, let me sort of sort of ask you. You know, have these last few months revealed anything new or different to you uh, about NATO? Have you learned something new about NATO uh, over the last several months? You know, no, not really. Uh, I mean, think I've learned more about Putin, but. Uh, uh, than uh, about NATO. I think NATO is an organization that uh, uh, functions best uh, when it, it is most needed and when one of its members, uh, or more than one of its members in this case, feels threatened. Uh, and particularly uh, when it, the threat comes from uh, the largest military power in Europe that has spent the last 15 years modernizing its military capabilities, by the way, exactly the same time that the Europeans for the past 15 years have significantly cut their uh, defense expenditures and investments and whatever um, real expenditures have been uh, ongoing were for operations in Afghanistan that is far away uh, from Russia. Uh, uh, Under those circumstances, when they are threatened and, and importantly, we have a United States that is willing to lead the alliance by providing information, by suggesting strategies for a way forward, uh, NATO unites. Uh, and I think part of what we're seeing playing out here is Putin's miscalculation, believing that Biden post-Afghanistan uh, and the fissures within the alliance, first caused by Trump, uh, but not really healed uh, by Biden in, in the first few months of his presidency because of Afghanistan, because of the ruckus over AUKUS uh, and a variety of other things, that uh, he could he could somehow show further divisions. And he's finding NATO more united today than, frankly, it has been certainly when I was there in 09 to 13, but in a very, very long time, reminding uh, many people of why NATO exists and uh, why it is important that it remains a, a strong uh, military, but also a political actor in the center of Europe. Uh, if it's okay, can I ask you one last question if you have time? I know we didn't plan to, to have you as a speaker, but uh, if you are you able to answer one more question? Sure, I've got one more. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, do you see at this point any potential diplomatic offerings or, or what... What opportunities might you see uh, coming from uh, diplomacy in the near term? You know, is there any concessions that NATO or the West might offer Putin to to enable that off ramp? What is there like a diplomatic way out of this that you see perhaps coalescing, if not in the near future, sometime down the road? So I think there is a possibility for a diplomatic outcome, um, but it would require Putin to to change uh, not only his tactics, but perhaps 
his goals. Uh, what Putin wants, which is to control Ukraine, it's not about NATO. This is about Moscow's control of Ukraine, uh, whether that's direct control by incorporating uh, uh, Ukraine back into a Russian empire, or whether it's indirect control by assuring that its government does does its bidding is is uncertain, but control uh, is something it wants. It's not about, in, in that sense, NATO. What he wants with NATO, which is that NATO disappears from Central and Eastern Europe in all practical purposes, uh, uh, which in effect mean either two tiers of membership, those who would be defended and those who won't, uh, which would fundamentally transfer NATO or, uh, you know, having 14 members who have joined since uh, the late 1990s, uh, voluntarily departing the alliance. Uh, and ultimately what he wants is the United States removed as a source of influence in Europe and indeed in the world. Those things aren't negotiable. They either happen organically because of changes in the balance of power uh, or, or, or other ways, but they're not negotiable. Uh, and so the only question is, is, is Putin willing to settle for anything less? Perhaps uh, a set of arms control uh, confidence-building measures, regulatory, uh, military activity regulations that, indeed, Biden, again, talked about today, we've put on the table for a long time. And there may, you know, there, there are legitimate Russian concerns about uh, some of the things that NATO and the United States have done over the years. And let's have a conversation about those. But there's also legitimate U.S. and NATO concerns about what the Russians are doing. Most importantly, having 150,000 troops at the highest posture of readiness we've seen since uh, really since uh, the end of uh, of the Cold War and uh, the prospect of uh, a military confrontation that we haven't seen in Europe since the end of World War II. Um, that's a concern, too. Uh, having nuclear missiles in Kaliningrad, which is a small area in between Poland and Lithuania, is of concern. Uh, violating uh, past arms control agreements is of concern. And yes, the U.S. has walked out of some of these agreements. And uh, I think the Biden administration is saying, you want to have a discussion about that? Let's have that. But on your core demands, that's not negotiable. Uh, well, Ivo, thank you so much for your time and, and uh, for your impromptu uh, interventions here today. I've been following your your work since the early 2000s, since like the Dean campaign era. I, I uh, so appreciate uh, your contributions. Thank you so sure. much. My pleasure, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Melinda Herring for speaking with me on short notice and to Evo Dalder for speaking with me at no notice. Uh, that reference I, I made at the end uh, was to uh, the Howard Dean campaign in the early 2000s. Evo Dalder was one of just like a very small number of establishment foreign policy people who uh, opposed the drive to the Iraq war and opposed Bush's decision to invade and occupy Iraq. And uh, he, he served as a policy advisor to the Howard Dean campaign, which was like the explicitly anti-Iraq war uh, presidential campaign. Uh, the other, I think, key foreign policy figure around that time to come out against the uh, Iraq war was Susan Rice. And it's no surprise, I think, that both Dalder and Susan Rice went on to serve as senior officials in the Obama administration. Anyway, a little uh, foreign policy uh, history for you. I will see you next time. Bye.